This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the War School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree, coming to you from a summer studio in New Jersey. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks Strong Run and the Future for Investors. I'm also going to be joined by one of my colleagues, Lee Chen Ren. Uh, Lee Chen and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. And the views of our guests are not those who are affiliates. We're going to have a really fascinating show with a geopolitical expert, chief strategist at the Clock Tower Group, talking Russia, China, the implications of all these geopolitical dynamics for asset markets. But, Professor, we'll kick it off with you. We're ending the first half. Been a tough year. Stocks and bonds. Uh, let's get your take for the second half of the year. Yeah, most certainly. Um you know, as a, you know, the worst first half in the year uh, in 52 years, uh, but but nowhere near the worst six month period. We've had a lot much worse six month periods. Um, I, I think the important really news is how fast the economy is deteriorating. And, you know, we talked about that. I mean, I sort of shocked people three weeks ago by saying just a minute, the Fed could be too tight. Uh, and maybe maybe we'll not go the full 75 basis points. Um, the data is really deteriorating rapidly. I mean, we got the final read on first quarter GDP down 1.6. The current read on this quarter that just ended yesterday has deteriorated from up one three weeks ago to minus one and a half. Uh, I've rarely seen such a rapid deterioration and um the momentum is not good as more data comes in don't forget we really don't don't have a lot of june data Uh, it might actually go lower if it does we have two consecutive quarters of negative gdp uh, which although technically satisfies a recession definition two things have to be understood that's not an official definition which is determined by the Dating Business Cycle Committee of the National Bureau of Economic Research. But more importantly, um, when we use a rule of thumb of two consecutive uh, negative quarters, uh, back in the post-war period, most of it, we were growing at 3 to 4% a year. So going negative was a, a much bigger deal. Now that the trend rate of growth is down to 1.5% to 2%, Per year, you know, we're going to dip negative more often. Nonetheless, we're negative more than 1%, approaching more than maybe 2%. So this may be called a recession. I thought the employment report uh, this morning was was dismal, well under expectations. I'm very interested to see what the um, payroll report uh is uh, Friday, um, when I'm talking about the ISM report that that came out uh, this morning, the employment component of that ISM report. But every component uh, looked bad. I mean, the only components that are looking good are now associated with inflation (laughs) um, because it uh, it is coming down with the weakness of the economy. We've commented on that. most of the commodity indices are well below their highs. Um, labor market is still extremely strong, but I'm really interested in, again, in seeing what the payroll shows. Um, I don't understand how we could have a lot of growth in payroll with negative GDP. I mean, that, that implies another dramatic fall in productivity, which uh, was already dramatic in the first quarter. Um, so these are very unusual Times. And as, as a recession, if it is called as one, it will be one of the most unusual recessions in recorded history because unemployment rate is, uh, as we know, near all time lows. Um, unemployment uh, uh, jobless claims are also very low. And yet that's the only market that has remained strong. Uh, 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 we did have the money supply 
report on Tuesday, it showed a tiny fraction of uh, 1% uh, 1 increase, basically unchanged uh, in May from April. The total money supply growth from the beginning of the year has been about 1%. Now, we have to remember that this is off of 25% in 2020 and and nearly 15% in 2021. So they're, they've slammed on the brakes. The economy, the anticipation of that tightening and the statement of tightening and the increase in real rates has really uh, slowed down um, economic growth. I, I still maintain we have four weeks, um, almost four weeks, until the Fed meets in July. I don't think a 75 basis point uh, increase is a slam dunk. Uh, I even uh, brooded the idea that perhaps if the data continues to depreciate, they'll go only 25. Um, right now, I mean, I'm looking at a 10-year, it's 286, but this morning it fell below 280. I mean, that's only almost 70 basis points before below where it was just a, a month ago. We almost have inversion. I mean, we have the two-year at 280 and the 10-year at 286 or six basis points away um, from inversion on two and two and tens. Um, there has also been a lowering of expectations on the federal funds rate in those futures markets. Um, so um, uh, the weakening is there. And, um, uh, um, you know, this, this is a case where we're going to cool off the job market so that um, it isn't as tight, but workers still have to get an increase. They still have to get a, a an increase to compensate for inflation unless their productivity has, in fact, fallen by 4 5 6%, which would be totally unprecedented. Uh, I, I, I don't understand how, how actually that could, that could happen. Um, so we have to give way some increases to those workers. The only source of inflation now is labor costs. Um, and uh, anything that's labor-intensive will pass on those increase uh, in, in costs. Um, um, but you see a really a toppling of home prices, commodity prices, energy prices, even freight prices, uh, deliveries, for instance, um, uh, on-time deliveries uh, are increasing dramatically. Those slowdown and supply chain problems are being mitigated um, because of the decrease in demand and also, of course, because of the reopening in China, which we truly hope will remain reopened. I, I worry about um, the, uh, you know, another COVID shutdown, but um, 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 that's in a significant wild card going forward. And uh, then and I know the big question for you is going to be earnings for the second half of the year. And as as we've been able to have pretty good earnings for the first half, despite this sort of sluggish growth, anything getting you more nervous on on that outlook? You know, uh, we you know we have again very few warnings so far. I mean, you know what 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 we're getting is you know a decrease in demand and uncertainty going forward, but most are meeting their earnings goal. Uh, you know, we had a listen in this negative one and a half percent GDP first half, we had an increase in earnings. Now, in real earnings, we did not. If you factor in the price increases, you know, we've had a decrease in real earnings. But you know, in in what is technically uh, a recession, we really did not have an earnings. Uh, collapse. Um, so what's going to happen in the second term? Um, maybe third quarters are going to be weak because I see this, the, 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 they will have to come down. But uh, my feeling is that the Fed may very soon, and that's when the bear market turns around, when the Fed says we see enough prices going down that we may not have to keep on hiking as aggressively as we can. As I stated last week, I think the real rates are too high. I, you know, the, the Ten-year uh, now it's dropped. The ten-year tips is 50 basis points, and that was up to 70 and 80. But I still think the equilibrium rate is zero or negative. So there's still that tightness in the market. High, you know, the, the spreads on high grade. But if we take a look at the mortgages, I mean, you know, double as we talked about last week. So there's a lot of disinflationary stuff going on. Except that there's going to be a lot of back wages that have to just catch up. Um, um, 
for the workers. That's why we're seeing some industrial actions and some strike activities, not only in the United States, uh, but also in uh, in Europe and England. Um, and people saying, you know, listen, this is, uh, you know, I'm falling behind while there's record profits on the part of, of corporations. And we know that people can turn around and uh, usually get a job right away somewhere else. Professor, thanks for kicking off the show as always. Uh, have a great holiday weekend. We'll, we'll get your, your updates next yeah, week. Yeah, we'll take a look at that employment report next Friday. Thank you, Professor. Have a good weekend. Thank you. We're going to turn the conversation to uh, Marco Papich, who's uh, chief strategist at Clock Tower Group. Marco covers all sorts of geopolitics and the markets, the economy. Mar- Marco, welcome back to Behind the Markets. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy and Lichion. Why don't you give us your uh, – we're going to get into a lot of the geopolitical situations, but give us your – you heard the professor's take on the economy and what's going on in the markets. What's, what's your high-level, top-down view of the world today? What are the key things that you are focused on? Well, you know, I think we're in a <clears> – we've been in extraordinary circumstances since um, the U.S. basically spent $5.5 trillion of fiscal and – I don't even know how much monetary stimulus to fight uh, the COVID recession, which basically created this situation where for the first time in history of humans, you know, you had a recession and like net worth of households went up. And so you should expect extraordinary outcomes um, to reverberate many years after this event, which could include, as the professor said, you know, a situation where you have a very shallow recession which is defined as two quarters of negative GDP growth, but it doesn't really feel like a recession. Maybe it feels more like a mid-cycle drawdown that we had in 2015-16 last time around. You know, um, and so I think that that's the first issue. I think uh, a lot of the leading indicators, including our clock tower growth indicator, you know, we're basically flagging that PMIs would be under 50, that there would be a growth slowdown. I think the transition from uh, a good binge a binge we've had for basically two years of just clicking on Amazon, like buy, buy, buy. Transferring from that to a services-oriented growth is going to be choppy. Uh, you can't binge on services. You can't, you know, have four haircuts a month uh, to compensate for not having haircuts, you know, for two years. But you can, you can, in the middle of the pandemic, go out and spend thousands of dollars on a home gym. You can do that. You just can't now go and get... I mean, I guess you could have four monthly gym memberships if you really wanted to, but why would you? So there's all sorts of reasons why, you know, um, standard models or standard expectations should not apply. That said, you know, my view for the past two months has been to be long bonds, short commodities. So that did not really work when we put it on uh, in May, but since June that has started working. And what I would say is that if you look at the chart of commodities, the one that is clearly now an outlier is oil. And I think that a slew of geopolitical and uh, macro factors are now conspiring to really set up a oil bearish moment, which will allow the Fed, along with the ISM print we saw, uh, when oil prices come down, I think it will allow the Fed to pat itself on the back and pivot away from extreme hawkishness. So we're probably seeing peak Fed hawkishness right now, and it's all downhill from here, not just because of the growth slowdown, but also because Jay Powell told us in June 15th he's anchoring to headline inflation, and um, that's likely to come down given the setup for oil prices, which is not just a macro call, it's also a geopolitical call as well. So, so maybe let's go into a little bit more details there. What, When you think uh, about where that oil price is, how much is... Do you think the Russia-Ukraine, is your forecast that things are going to get settled there more and you're going to have more things flowing through there? Is there a different element of that's going to add supply or, or just put more downward pressure on it? Well, I think the first and foremost issue is, uh, you know, demand isn't looking great. Uh, you know, like when ISAM is hurtling down from 55 to, you know, high 40s, I just don't understand how you can be bullish about U.S. demand, first and foremost. The second issue is China. I think that the zero COVID policy is a uh, is an unfortunate event for us in the macro community because it has blindsided us to the structural problems in China. Uh, and the structural uh, problems in China have to do with the fact that uh, policymakers are pushing on a string, the private sector is over leveraged, household debt is percent of disposable income is higher than it is in almost any Western economy other than like Australia and Canada. 
So when you think about it that way, um, it's blindsided us. It, it's blinded us to the underlying weakness of China's economy. And um, it doesn't mean China's going to implode. It doesn't mean that China's going to have a crisis. It just means that China is in 2009. China is in 2010 in terms of its cycle, which means that, you know, private sector is not going to drive growth in the country. Policymakers are going to have to panic and pull the investment-led growth lever at some point later this year to put a bottom in growth, and they are not willing really to do that yet. So you have demand weakness in both U.S. and China, uh, and on top of that, you have the geopolitical situation in Ukraine. Um, now, what's happening in Ukraine is that, you know, Russians have basically been proven to be extremely incompetent in terms of fighting war. Uh, on March 24th, they had the full extent of control of a lot of northern parts of Ukraine, including major cities like Chernihiv. They were outside of Kharkiv and Kiev, the second and the first largest cities in, in Ukraine. On March 25th, they withdrew from all of that and proclaimed victory. You know, which was, which was basically hilarious. You know, like, oh, no, 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 we won. We demilitarized Ukraine, so now we're going to withdraw. I think another moment like that is coming. Um, they really, I mean... Given their disparity in strength and artillery capability, they should have conquered Donetsk and Luhansk many, many weeks ago. They still haven't. I assume they eventually will, and then they will basically raise a mission accomplished better. And that will allow oil prices to kind of readjust to the reality that this war is not going to get worse. It's not necessarily going to get better, but it's going to be either a frozen conflict, a stasis, something like the Korean War, which, by the way, you know, is still going on officially on paper, 69 years later. We never had a peace deal in Korea either. So some sort of a stasis like that will happen. And that's really important because it sets up uh, European politics to move away from the uh, application of the oil embargo. Basically, what I'm saying is I, I doubt that Europeans are going to implement the oil embargo, which, by the way, in six months, it's supposed to start in January, April for uh, petroleum products. So it's not even in effect. Uh, and the reason for that is that once the Russians uh, basically focus on Donbas, the front pages of European newspapers will no longer be about civilian deaths in Ukraine. They'll be about energy costs. And I would argue that that's already happening. You've seen the legislative election in France. You have general election coming up in Italy. And several parties in Italy are essentially not pro-Russian, but let's put it this way, not very enthusiastically pro-Ukrainian. You know, whether it's Five Star Movement, which just split on this issue, whether it's Lega, which is trailing in the polls to the Fratelli d'Italia, or whether it's Berlusconi's uh, Forza Italia, which is actually having a little bit of a revival. Uh, Italian elections are in June. Um, and then you have Spanish election uh, probably at some point next year as well. So European politics is going to move away from a vociferous support for Ukraine. And I think that that's going to ease some of the pressures on the energy markets. Pressures that, honestly, I think are pretty um, ephemeral anyways. <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out why the consensus in the market is that we're going to lose a million and a half barrels out of Russia. You know, Goldman Sachs wrote a report in mid-March uh, flagging that. I think that's outdated. Uh, I think that the most we're going to lose out of Russia by the end of the year is maybe half a million barrels due to various shut-ins. But those can, those can be fixed, you know, especially if ENI engineers are sent by Italy to fix them. Uh, and that's kind of the world we're going to be in by the end of the year. Uh, so I do think that oil prices are the last commodity standing, and it's the last sort of a, um, it's the last you know peg of a stool that has to be broken for this um, drawdown. I think in risk assets in general to basically bottom. Chen, let me bring you in here. We're talking with Marco Popich, uh, who's chief strategist at Clock Tower Group. You, you and I were talking. You have a, I think maybe a similar view on on how does this this war resolve? A lot of people were saying this thing never resolves; it's going to go on forever. Well, give us your take as well on on what's been going on. I think, uh, Marco, in some way, I agree. The way I see it is from the U.S. point of view. What's the benefit? What's the, I think the war goes on if the marginal benefit for the U.S. is high. The, the marginal benefit for now for the U.S. is not that high anymore. Obviously, I'm not a geopolitics you know, uh, analyst, but the way I see it is that U.S. already achieved its goal of uh, uh, containing Russia economically. And also, I think the U.S. was also kind of hoping China to make a mistake. Uh, but China has shown that 
it has pretty much done whatever U.S. Uh, European sanctions require. So it has not uh, gone in and be a very strong um, ally in helping Russia um, in action. You know, in rhetoric, China is still with Russia, but in action, it has not. So I think from from U.S. point of view, um, the marginal benefit of making this war worse is significantly less now. So the next step will be similar, like um, uh, Marco's uh, particular politics in Russia, that it, the name of the war may continue, but the actual action of the war will be significantly less. Second is that I don't know much, but my understanding is winter generally is is uh, advantage to Russia um, for for their military. But but I don't know enough of those to comment. But I think from the U.S. point of view, the marginal benefit of a worsened war is significantly less now. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a good point, Lichian. Um I would also say that you know Russia has a lot to lose here as well, and I think that. Um, a lot of investors are, are focusing on their recent decisions to cut off natural gas supply to various countries in Europe. Now, they've strategically picked off countries that are relatively relevant in the grand scheme of things, you know, other than Poland, which is pretty relevant, but Poland actually has filled up its reserves to 100% of natural gas needs. So they have 12 months worth of supply. The one thing that they have done is in early June, they cut off um, natural gas shipments via Nord Stream to Germany uh, by about 60%. Now, it's interesting because the timing is several weeks ahead of the uh, usually planned July shut-in by Nord Stream. So Nord Stream pipeline actually goes to zero. So what the Russians are doing is they're clearly playing brakemanship. They're clearly flagging to Europe like, hey, you know, this is what we can do in the winter when it matters. But they're choosing to do it at a time when it's still not that critical. And there's a reason for this that I really think we need to understand. You know, Europe imports 39% of its natural gas needs from Russia. But natural gas is only 25% of its total energy use. So that means that Russian natural gas supplies Europe with about 10%. Russian natural gas is 10% of total energy needs of Europe. But think about it this way. European demand, European demand is 76% of Russian natural gas exports. So this is one of those moments where you got to ask yourself, who has who by the pipelines? You know, like, I mean, I'm not sure that Russians really want to mess with this, because here's the truth. Europe does have alternatives to natural gas. It does. It's just been dragging its feet for various ESG reasons, right? So what did the, what did the German coalition held together by the Green Party do a couple of days ago? It basically said, let's fire up those coal plants, you know, and many are accusing it of hypocrisy, but it's like, no, Germany's being Machiavellian and real politic. Europeans can also boost their LNG import facilities, which were at 5% capacity last year. They can boost them to 100%, which they are doing. And Russians can't do any of this because their export tool for natural gas are pipelines that are nailed to the ground. They cannot magically pivot them to China. It's going to take a decade and half a trillion dollars for them to do that. And so I think that what's happening right now in the natural gas market as well is a bluff. I think if you look at December 2022 contract, uh, which has basically gone up through the roof, um, you know, I think it's basically flagging apocalypse by the end of the winter. And I think Russians are not going to have the guts to do that. And what this means is that if oil prices come down, as I'm saying, I think they, they're being set up to do. And if natural gas prices come down in Europe as well, then I think Europe, not just the U.S., will have that headline inflation basically peak right now and come down. And then central banks are going to be able to pat themselves on the back for nothing. I mean, they really didn't contribute to this much, but they're going to be able to say, look, headline inflation is coming down with a step off. But in truth, they'll be doing that not because headline inflation is coming down, but because they're afraid of growth. And I think fundamentally, the Fed and the ECB is fundamentally driven by politics and afraid of what happens if a bunch of unelected technocrats who have never had a job, a real job, outside of academia or government cause a recession. I mean, if that actually happens, you know, we're in a whole new world. Um, and I don't think, I mean, I think that this will keep them up at night, which is why you should expect central banks to be at peak hawkishness right now. Well, you know, Marco, one of the last times we talked, um, you had a long-term view on sort of the, the move to green energy and the commodity market supporting that transition. 
Uh, has any of these, the, the war, changed your long-term outlook for those? Uh, it sounds like you have a, a cyclical commodity short-type trade-on, but uh, do, do you, does that take away from your that, that other thesis? Well, I guess I would say it's a, it was a tactical short on commodities two months ago. So long bonds, I mean, no one's been more short bonds, long commodities than me, to my detriment, because 2021 ripped my face off when the 10-year went from 1.7 to 1.1. I, as many other people in macro, were pulling our hair out. So, yeah, so I've been short bonds, long commodities in, in terms of our strategy that we publish uh, for a very long time. And one of the reasons is this green energy transition, which both is bullish for commodities, but also bearish for bonds, because as we have seen, um, it has led to underinvestment in uh, fossil fuels and what I call brown energy. And it has and it requires you know high prices to incentivize green energy, and in particular, all the capex that we're going to have to do uh, is inflationary. I don't think that changes. I just think that uh, we are in this moment, in this interregnum, much like there was an interregnum in 2021 because of Delta. I think there's a growth interregnum right now, and it has to do with this extraordinary, like, you know, uh, back and forth we're having since the stimulus of 2020. We are now in an interregnum that is bullish for bonds because growth is downtrending and bearish for commodities, both because of growth and because commodities have kind of over, they've gotten over their skis. I mean, if you look at copper prices, like I get it, I understand China's less diagnostic for copper in a world that's transitioning to green energy. I love that argument. I believe in it over the next decade. But when you see like Chinese manufacturing PMIs decline as much as they have and the chart of copper prices just completely ignoring it, that's a little bit too much. And so tactically, yes, I'm sure commodities, but I think that investors, especially long-term institutional investors who have to pick managers who don't pivot day to day. They're not day traders. Use the weakness you're going to get over the next four to six months in commodities to build up those long-term positions. Find the managers, negotiate deals, uh, allocation deals now while you have a chance while commodities are falling uh, before these guys and gals become rock stars and slap you with a 440. Um. It, when when you think about the bond, do you have a, a a target on where you want the bonds? If you do, you, do you still believe in that? You're, it sounds like you still believe in a longer term structural inflationary thesis, but uh, in sort of the bonds is sort of a tactical short term. Like, is there a target that you want to see it get to, or or some sort of other catalyst that would get you to to, to switch from being long bonds? You know, for me to have a a, a target on the ten year yield, I would have to know how to do math, and I don't. So what I'm going to say is. When, when you start seeing central banks pivot away from their hawkish rhetoric, you know, when they basically say like, oh, we've done enough, I think that's when uh, the tenure decline is probably going to happen. So I'm much more of a narrative-driven investor than I am like a technical investor, although I respect technicals immensely and I love people who know how to teach me how to use them. Um, I do think that uh, we are in a higher inflationary environment. And I think that uh, the Fed has made a policy error to, to be quite honest, and I know this is not a popular view in the investment community uh, where a lot of, you know, uh, very, very smart people in our epistemic community have been saying that the policy error was not tightening earlier. And I respect that view, but I would also say that tightening fast now is a, a mistake because we're going to have this pocket where inflation comes down because headline inflation comes down, oil will follow the other commodities, blah, 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 great. But the problem is that if we have a recession, especially if we have like a deeper recession, that would be a policy error. And it would be a policy error because it will interrupt the CAPEX cycle. And what we need to deal with inflation on a long-term trajectory is we need a decade worth of a CAPEX binge. You're not going to sideline China in the global supply chain by having a recession because no one's going to start a factory project in the middle of a recession. You're not going to pivot semiconductor production out of Taiwan if you have a deep recession, and you're not going to find new technologies for green energy or for uh, new fossil fuel development. You're not going to do that in the middle of a recession when commodity prices come down. And that's, I think, something that um, is, is a risk to the Fed. I think they, they need to tighten financial conditions. I get that. But they, they're, they're really towing a very, very tight line because if the recession that they induce is painful, 
not only will the political outcomes be non-conducive to supply-side reforms, I mean, you're not going to get like Ronald Reagan get elected in 2024. You're going to get more populism. But aside from that, you're also going to interrupt the CAPEX cycle that would ensure that we get out of the inflationary uh, dynamic faster. What's amazing is just how quickly the conversation moved from Powell saying we're going to be 50-50, we're not considering 75, the pressure moved on him like overnight, and he moved 75, and now you have Siegel going like completely the other way after he was calling for them to do 100 to get it over with. Now he's like saying maybe they're going to only do 25. I mean, it's like whiplash we've got here on they're finally confronting inflation, and now they've got a recession that they're going to lower their target. But you know, Jeremy, this is, this is, this is something I wrote about like six months ago. This is hashtag inflation narrative. Like Twitter is basically leading the Fed. I mean, I'm not even kidding. Hashtag inflation narrative has now become hashtag growth. I mean, I wrote about that six months ago. And what's funny to me about this. Sorry, I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited about this point that I just knocked over my microphone. Um, what, what's really funny about this to me is this. I keep getting all these like really wealthy people in finance because, you know, it's all basically one percenters telling me about how hard it is to feed a family when ga- uh, a gallon of gas is seven bucks uh, a gallon, right, here in California. And I, I ask them, do you realize, let me ask you this, what's worse, having to dip into revolving credit and savings to pay for $7 gas or not being able to pay for $3 gas because you're out of a job? Now, because the Fed officials apparently do a lot of D.C. Uh, cocktail circuit parties, they apparently have been convinced that it's the latter that's the problem, uh, the former that's the problem. You know, that's a $7 gas. But it's a protest coming from all sorts of corners of American life, like from normal people who are going to say, like, whoa, wait a minute, recession? Nah, <laughs> I'm not having that. I'm okay with 5 6% CPI. Honestly, I'm good. The people who are not okay with that are savers. Those are the yep. people who are going to have a problem with 5 6% CPI. And I can assure you that the median voter in the United States of America is not a saver. And that's why I think it's very important to understand how quickly that's going to change, how quickly this focus on inflation. And that's why I think anyone who tells me that they're targeting uh, getting below 2%, I would say that that is politically untenable. We are not going to get below 2% target without a deep recession. And causing a deep recession is highly unlikely in the political environment we have in the United States today. Marco, we, we talked the first part of the program a lot about inflation, the Fed, uh, and, and all those implications across commodity markets. Let's talk a little bit about what you do with geopolitics. And you've been talking, you, you've written some reports about how to think about geopolitics as a factor in asset allocation, how you, how you try to incorporate into your worldviews of of the world. Talk about geopolitics and, and, and how you try to put frameworks around that for, for investors. You know, I, I started my career in political risk consulting and your area crisis uh, was really a formative moment in my life because I realized that it was purely a geopolitical event, but one that in order to really translate into actionable insights, you have to understand finance. And the problem Jeremy, is that because geopolitics and politics have been a tailwind, massive tailwind for investors, uh, they ignored it. You know, it was just they they became um, completely immune to it. They became numb to it because the wind always flowed in one direction. And so we became over-professionalized as an epistemic community. We just stopped caring about politics and geopolitics uh, on a day-to-day basis. So uh, to me, it was really about trying to uh, create a framework that a regular investor could use, not someone who has access to uh, extremely expensive, fancy consultants, you know, just something to put in our toolbox so that we can think about politics and geopolitics in a systematic manner. And that comes down to this idea that constraints are much more important than policymaker preferences, the material constraints, the reality, uh, things like the median voter and their preferences. Uh, you know, 10-year yields, uh, whether your country has a current account deficit that needs to be financed by foreigners, uh, military issues, uh, demographics. These are much more important than what a policymaker wants. Policymakers will ultimately follow the political path of least resistance. You know, and so uh, just a simple example about something we were talking about is this idea that the Fed has a legacy. You know, like this idea that, you know, they, they need to really protect their legacy. They don't want to be Arthur Burns. They want to be Paul Volcker. Like, I couldn't care less about that. Like, that's cool. You know, I, I've got preferences, too. I want to have, like, I don't know, abs. 
you know, <laughs> I want to... Uh, I want to spend more time at the beach here in Santa Monica. Like, that's cool, but you have constraints. And the constraint to the Fed is, like, there will be a revolution and you will be tarred and feathered. And I'm obviously being hyperbolic here, but the constraint is that the median voter in the United States of America is not in 1979-1980 state of mind where they were willing to incur pain because they had experienced inflationary cycle for basically a decade. In 1973, 1974, 75, the voter was not ready for that. That's why you've had the outcomes you've had. Not because Arthur Burns is somehow an idiot and Paul Volcker is somehow genius. Underneath that reality, which we've been told in finance, like these are our bedtime stories of our community. Like we, we get told these heroes and, 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 and villains. The truth is that underneath that was the median voter who wasn't ready for supply side reforms, wasn't ready for austerity or, or belt tightening in the mid-70s but had basically moved towards it by the 80s. And so it allowed someone like Paul Volcker to cause two recessions and, 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 and not get tarred with better for it. So that's the first issue. Um, that's the first kind of an idea. And I think that a lot of investors uh, still continue to talk about policymaker preferences instead of focusing on the material constraints. Now, the, I think the key issue outside of the the Russia-Ukraine conflict, I mean, the, the, the tensions with China seems to be the other major story. You could tell me if there's a different story that you'd rather focus on. But China was uh, in, in sort of the bear market of, of that we've been experiencing, the first into it back in February of, of last year. So we're, you know, 16 months into that. Um, they seem to have turned around a little bit. Is Is... Is the narrative changing at all with respect to China? Do you think it's, it's just a bounce and we're going back down? Any, any commentary on what you see happening with tensions in China and then what's happening in the asset markets? So, you know, I'm a very, uh, Jeremy, I'm, I'm very lonely on this uh, island where I believe that China has peaked as a global power. And it's a very lonely island. It's just me with a folding chair and a beer uh, in a hand. Uh, nobody else has come to my island. Um, which is sad because 10 years ago, I was also very lonely on the island, at least in the financial community, not in the academic or political risk community, but in the, in the financial community, I was pretty much the only person talking about South China Sea in 2012. I can assure you of that. Most investors couldn't find it on a map. Um, and so what my point is, it's like the time to forecast U.S.-China tensions was 10 years ago. Now, many people are extrapolating linearly what we've had over the last four years, but they're forgetting the fact that China has some real domestic issues that are going to require introspection on their part. And as Lichion said, I think U.S. was hopeful that China would be as stupid as Russia. You know, I think this was a hope. And, that, and you will continue to see the U.S. administration poke China as much as it can, especially on the issue of Taiwan. You'll have more missions to Taiwan, more trade deals, more weapons, more, you know, pronouncements that make no sense. And I... I am of the opinion that the Chinese policymakers understand their constraints and that they are very much focused on trying to deal with their uh, domestic leverage with the private sector, which has basically binged on debt for the past decade. And that they're also very much aware that exports and investment-like growth are going to be the name of the game for the next decade, which means, you know, if you require foreigners to uh, balance your capital account, which China doesn't need now, but it will soon, and when you need export markets, it's difficult to be invading other countries. So I think Chinese policymakers uh, are aware of this. Um, now, that doesn't mean that this is not going to be in the news, though, Jeremy. I think uh, you're going to see, obviously, midterm elections turn against the Democrats. This is expected. And by the way, please don't tell me it's about inflation. If I hear this one more time, I'm going to light myself on fire. The Democrats were going to lose the midterms no matter what. This is what happens to the you know, first-time president. This was like literally written in stone the moment Biden became the president. But what that's going to mean is that, as with every other presidency uh, in U.S. history, once the first-time president loses initiative domestically, they seek relevance abroad because the Constitution allows them to do that. Republicans are going to block domestic agendas, so President Biden is going to have to basically pretend he's relevant over the next two years. And the clear way he can do that is by being tough on China. So I do think that in 2023 and 24, investors should expect more fireworks on the China-U.S. front, even if China doesn't want to dance. You know, even if they are just saying, like, leave us alone, we want to focus domestically. I do think that U.S. is going to be quite aggressive and investors are going to have to navigate that over the next several, um, several years. 
Very interesting. Um, Lee Chen's been saying that she also didn't think they were going to go invade Taiwan, even though a lot of people, that rhetoric was was happening. I, I'm curious, when you say they're going to be aggressive, it, it, do you think it's going to be – because of the inflation, do you think they're going to go back away from the tariffs and things like that? Or what's the what's the aggression that you think they're going to take? What what form is that likely? I think just rhetoric, rhetoric, support for Taiwan through um, arms exports, uh, you know, you're going to have high-profile members of the administration go visit Taiwan, which is something that China, irks China uh, immensely. It's going to be those kind of, you know, uh, those kind of tools uh, in the U.S. toolbox. And I think what Ukraine has proved, by the way, to the U.S. Uh, policymakers, is that I think America is becoming more Machiavellian. You know, and, and this isn't some sort of a conspiracy theory. I'm not saying that men smoking cigars in a room in the White House have decided, let's be more Machiavellian. No. I think American policymakers have just become aware of the fact that nobody cares what they think around the world. Like, truly nobody. And I don't mean like Iran or like France. I mean like even countries like the United Arab Emirates don't care what America thinks. In late 2021, the Biden administration asked UAE uh, to ban Huawei in order to receive F-35s. And, you know, UAE was like, nah, thanks. We're good. You know, we're just going to buy some French Rafales. Um, and that was it. The Biden administration just asked, like, can you please ban Huawei from 5G networks? And, you know, UAE was like, no. Uh, thank you very much. France has jets too. So what American policymakers have finally realized after three different ideologically vastly different administrations, Obama, Trump, now Biden, they've realized that the world that they inhabit is no longer one ruled by America. It's a multipolar system. It's not American hegemony anymore. America's not in charge, but then the realization is like, well, if we're not in charge, then we don't have to really maintain global stability. You know, so if we provoke Russia into doing something idiotic, like it's not our fault, it's their fault. And the U.S. does have much higher risk tolerance than other great powers because it's so far away from everyone else, because it's shielded by oceans and commodity uh, endowment and so on. The U.S. can basically, you know, write checks to its allies, it has no intentions of ever cashing. And this, ha- this is what happened with Ukraine. I'm not blaming the U.S. for what happened. Obviously, Russians ultimately crossed the border and Russians ultimately shelled the cities and killed civilians. But the fact of the matter is, America was writing ca- uh, checks to Ukraine. It never intended to cash. One of them is Ukrainians clearly thought that they would get more support in terms of a no-fly zone. And the U.S. was like, are you kidding me? Hell no. Like, you're on your own. But here's some javelins. You know, have fun fighting the Russians in cities. Uh, and, and I think you will see the U.S. adopt that much more Machiavellian, much more kind of 19th century British, very, you know, very intelligent, but also brutal foreign policy approach, which does raise geopolitical risks for investors. Um, I, I, again, I don't think this is a conspiracy. It's not like it's a stated policy of the U.S. to try to drag China and Russia into war. It's just that the blowback to the U.S. is much smaller than I think a lot of people think. And so if it happens, it's not necessarily against American interests. And that's very dangerous, especially in the case of Taiwan, and especially if Chinese growth downtrends, and especially if domestic political risks in China rise, because at some point Chinese policymakers, this is not my view, but what I fear, at some point they might say, you know what, we will take America's challenge because we have nothing else going for us at home. We might as well export domestic political risks abroad. We're talking with Marpo, Marco Papish of the Clock Tower Group. We, Lee Chen Ren, one of my colleagues at Wisdom Tree. Go, Lee Chen, I was going to get your take on what you saw happening in this China and, and what the, the recent developments. Um, indeed, I, I think uh, I agree somewhat that uh, actually in China, there is a consensus that uh, U.S. will provoke China, hoping China to make a mistake. But think, you know, it's a game theory, right? If Chinese already realizing that that is what you know us is uh trying to do and from russia i think uh, china learned uh some way how to manage uh the relationship with uh, different countries so i'm a little bit more on the uh, positive side on i do believe geopolitical risk uh, increases because we're shifting from uh um you know one uh shifting toward a little bit more multipolar or bipolar. I'm probably a little bit more on the bipolar world. Uh, the way I see bipolar is is Asia, 
uh, I think uh, U.S. is going to have to find a way to pivot toward Asia. Uh, I think in many countries in Asia, seeing what's happening in Europe, uh, is trying to avoid, you know, what's happening in Europe. I, 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 so I think uh, the risk of China invading Taiwan indeed is very low, particularly right now President Xi's power is pretty secure. He doesn't need a domestic um, agenda, uh, doesn't need a Taiwan issue to, to get uh, his political power. Obviously, in another five years, uh, there will be, you know, another party congress. Uh, we, we don't know, you know, in next five years, will China be you know domestically uh, shift growth uh, successfully transition out of the COVID zero. I think these are uncertainty, but probably on this side a uh, little bit more positive of, of than Mark, uh, um, uh, while agreeing a, a lot of a lot of things. So Marco, taking all this in, be, besides your tactical trades on short uh, commodities, long bonds. How how else are you thinking about uh, portfolios or, or what you're suggesting? Taking the all the elements of, of geopolitics and and the economy here, what what's your baseline suggestion for people? Well, I think first and foremost, stop thinking of geopolitics as an appendage. You know, that's that's what I would say. So, um, you know, most most uh, most research firms and most I think sell side. Um, shops and most investment banks think of geopolitics as something that kind of falls from the sky and then upsets your growth and inflation outlook. You know, so you basically have to sit down, you have to model where inflation and growth are going to be, and then you stop and you bring in an expert or you have like a blue sky of geopolitics as a team and then you put that on top of your forecast. And that to me is like making a cake without butter. You know, like it's just like let's make a cake and then throw butter on top. You cannot, you cannot be an investor without politics and geopolitics being part of the process. Um, I mean, you, 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 know, you can have 17 PhDs in economics, and you would have probably not forecast inflation in 2021. I mean, and that's what happened with the Fed. They completely missed just how, uh, just how important the combination of the green energy agenda, the national security agenda, which is like, let's leave China out of supply chains, and then $5.5 trillion worth of fiscal. Like, that stew, that goulash, has nothing to do with macroeconomics. It is purely, every single one of those elements is purely political and geopolitical. And so I think that that's, that's my advice, first and foremost. Like, start thinking of geopolitics and politics like the way you think about valuations, like the way you think about momentum or technical analysis. It's part of our toolbox. Now, what that means for us right now, I think that we have this, moment, this growth interregnum, long bonds, short commodities, seems like a great tactical hedge. It's now becoming more of like, not a hedge, but like the view. And I think that we do reach the bottom in risk assets still faster than people think, because the recession is not going to be deep. It's going to be shallow because monetary policy authorities are not going to try to get us under 2%. I think we're going to be fine at 5% CPI. They're going to proclaim victory. They'll invent another ridiculous term, like we're asymptotically approaching our target. You know, the way transitory was stupid. Now let's hear something else. And, and by the way, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, on this, I'm slightly disagree, but when you mentioned the uh, inflation, like Japan, right? Like you've written about Japan. Japan is trying to increase inflation. Um, uh, do, do you think that that U.S. will will be going toward that route? Japanese route? No. I don't think we're in a deflationary environment or a disinflationary environment uh, for, you know, several years, if not the rest of this decade. Just because we, we're reversing. So, look, inflation deflation has nothing to do with central banks. Like, Volcker didn't do anything. My chocolate Labrador, let, let, me, let me really emphasize this. My chocolate Labrador would have brought inflation down to the 80s. Truly. Truly. And here, I'll tell you the, the reason is the only difference between Burns and Volcker is that, you know, Volcker got lucky. Like, and by the way, Burns bested inflation too. Inflation went from 13% to 5%. Burns also caused a recession, 73 to 75, very deep recession. But the difference was that politics and geopolitics didn't align in Burns' favor and demographics too. Volcker, several years later, had a lot of tailwinds. First of all, the median voter finally realized that demand-style Keynesian policies were not what the world needed. So Margaret Thatcher and the Ronald Reagan revolution started this less than fair revolution that we have coasted on for 40 years, supply-side reforms. 
The second is Soviet Union collapse. You had the largest supply side shock in human history from 85 onwards. So a little bit later after Volcker, but it, it strengthened, it created the credibility that we think Volcker created. No, it was the deflationary context of the 80s. And the deflationary context is that in 1980, 30% of humans on the planet lived under capitalism. 30%. That was your labor force. 1995, 90%. In 10 years, we expanded the global supply of labor three times. And that allowed, you know, labor arbitrage. That's what defeated the unions. That's what kept wages low in the developed world. And that's what broke the inflationary cycle of the 70s. So this idea that it was just central bankers raising interest rates, I think, is just really, really silly. And I think that today we're in a very similar world of the mid-70s in which, you know, no matter what they do, we're still going to be in an inflationary cycle because we haven't built the capex necessary to satisfy all of the political decisions that we've put on our agenda, whether it's the green energy transition, because we think we're going to die from climate change in 10 years, whether it's the fact that we now all decided China's evil. Five years ago, China was fine. Now it's evil. We've made these decisions as Western economies, and now we're going to have to live with them, but that's going to require a massive amount of capex to develop. And that's why I think policymakers, they're not going to be able to bring that you know, inflation down to below 2%. Now, if they choose to do that, if I'm wrong, and they do want to channel Paul Volcker because of their legacy, I think the two consequences of that will be more populism. You're not going to get reformers. You're not going to get supply-side reformers in 2024 in the U.S. election or in Spanish and Italian election next year. You're just not going to have that if you have a deep recession. So that's the first reason we're going to have more inflation. And the second issue is we're going to interrupt the capex cycle, and we're not going to solve all these problems that require more investment. And so we're going to delay when we get into disinflation. Well, Marco, um, you know, it's always a, a pleasure to get your view. There's so much going on in the world, and this is front and center, the most important issue. So great to get your take and uh, in incorporating geopolitics into asset allocation, a key point from all these conversations. Uh, where, where can people keep in touch with your work? Um, you know, they can uh, reach us at our website, um, contact at Bakhtar. Dot com And also, I'm on Twitter now, actually. I have joined the Twitter revolution. I know I'm so late on this, but I'm at Geo underscore Popich. We got to wrap. Thanks for the show. Chris Tukes in the soundboard, Lee Chen Ren, Marco. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on Sirius XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.